This is SB Talks Tech with Trent Jacobs and Steve Rossenfuss. And together we cover emerging technology for the Journal of Petroleum Technology. Hey everyone, welcome to the SB Podcast. Uh, it's officially fall here in the Northern Hemisphere. So Steve, happy fall. And uh, to all our listeners in the Southern Hemisphere, happy spring. Right, and um, none of us flooded, so we're uh, we're at work, and we're happy to talk about technology. Yeah, yeah. In case you're uh, not familiar with the weather habits of Houston, it's it's kind of become monsoon season, and we're all shaking off a little bit of wet weather and ready to get into some hardcore technology stuff with oil and gas. Hey there, listener. Would you like to have all things SBE delivered wherever you go instantly? Well, we got you covered. SBE now has an app. You get access to One Petro, all the full SBE event calendar. I've got the app on my phone. Uh, the home screen is really easy to access. It's easy to use. It's available in both the App Store and Google Play. Uh, just search SBE International and download that thing today. So, Steve, we got a, a few different topics today. You know, we were going to look at some real-time fracturing, what that means for the shale sector. We're going to talk about some pressure monitoring, some developments in the reservoir diagnostic space. And then one of the things we wanted to wrap up with was sort of a higher level look at uh, so-called cube drilling out in the Permian, where that is today, where it's going. And so what, what do you want to start, uh, Trent? Well, we're going to look at uh, I, our first topic was, you know, real-time fracturing or real-time fracking and, and what that is. Uh, so, you know, if, in, in case you're not in the know here, uh, the shale sector in the United States and, and Canada as well is, is talking about moving away from so-called cookie-cutter fracks. Uh, these are the uh, fracturing designs that if you have 25 uh, stages, maybe 50 stages in a well, you essentially do every one of them the same, and you limit the changes uh, in, in subsequent wells as well. So um, people are looking at an alternative, which would be more custom uh, stage designs. You know, you may use a different rate um, to pump it in, you may use different kinds of uh, fluids or, or volumes of fluids and volumes of sand. Uh, so this is uh, kind of starting a, a big debate uh, in the shale sector, in the completions arena, uh, about how much customization can uh, the sector really do practically. Well, doesn't it? I mean, obviously, we all, the one thing that everyone says is this rock changes a lot unpredictably. Wells don't produce evenly. Why not? Why not? Why hasn't this been done? Uh, essentially, it hasn't been done because, A, uh, the data to get uh, that rock heterogeneity uh, well-described hasn't been there on every well. And so people have uh, gotten lots of that information from so-called science wells, but not at a, at a large scale. And then the, the second big factor is uh, the industry has really been working for the last decade to make the surface operations as efficient as possible. And if you start uh, you know, introducing unpredictable changes uh, downhole, you also introduce them up up on the surface, and you may lose those efficiencies. So it's been from an operational angle and a data angle um, that is the reason why people really haven't moved to customizing frac stages sooner. And is there any company that's even doing it yet or close? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at uh, across the shale production or the shale producer spectrum, you'll find that uh, there are uh, private equity backed smaller players considered the most nimble in the business who have gone out of their way to customize or tailor a lot of their frac designs. Uh, but that's not uh, being done at scale. Then you have larger operators, um, large independents, some of the majors 
looking at uh, this from a pilot perspective. So they're, they're testing out um, customized designs and they really want to see if the return can be uh, achieved at scale. So on the, on the one hand, you have these guys who are smaller and can do that, can afford to do this at the other end, when you're, when you're fracking 300 uh, wells a year, uh, it becomes a, a bigger challenge to say, I'm going to customize each frack design. So were you talking customizing from well to well? I mean, years ago, I remember doing a story about fiber optic, and I said, well, if you observe something that was clearly a problem, could you fix it on the next stage? Could you adjust as you went? And they said, oh, no, that's absolutely impossible. This, the logistics are just insane on that. Yeah, so the logistics is one thing, but uh, like I said, going back, to the, going back to the subsurface data acquisition, that's becoming much more possible today to get that information out of the well uh, close to real time or in real time and actually uh, analyze it and make a decision on the next stage. So that's happening, but the cultural changes, the, uh, the ma change management issues, those have not been worked out. Uh, who has the authority to implement the change? Usually the field does not have that authority. And in a lot of cases, this data is going to be processed in the field. And so they're going to, a lot of the operators are working on uh, communication um, protocols to try to fix this, this change management issue. Because simply put, they, like you said, they've never had to make changes. Um, completion crews will tell you our job is to put sand away. Uh, increasingly, though, now it's going to be to increase the net present value of that well. And that's going to happen on a stage-by-stage -stage basis. We're talking about using different technologies uh, you know, digital pressure sensors, we both have picked up on this rising trend. It's not a new technology, but it's become increasingly popular. Uh, we're also seeing wireline deployed fiber optics become popular and even uh, distributed electromagnetic fields. Uh, and all of this, the, the data that's going to come from these technologies is going to feed uh, the platforms that are being rolled out right now. We were both at ERTEC, uh, the Unconventional Resources uh, Technology Conference in Denver, and on the show floor, at least half a dozen companies were coming out with completions, data, platforms, similar to what we saw in real-time drilling. And you mentioned the, the, the pressure monitoring, but uh, what are some other couple of those that look like they could be that the operators are saying are useful? Yeah, I mean, the, the, if you look at it from a cost basis and scalability um, basis, then you look at pressure sensors as the most scalable. Uh, they're the lowest cost of all these diagnostic technologies coming out. So what a lot of operators are doing is they're using some of the fancy stuff, the expensive stuff like micro seismic or fiber optics, and they're telling uh, us that they are going to uh, try to correlate those data sets down to uh, pressure sensors or what the pressure sensors say, and that way they have a very affordable, scalable solution to understand how the rock is talking to them as they frack it. Are some of these diagnostics like so elaborate they're just basically science experiments? Well, that's what you know, some of these technologies have been cast as for years, right? And, and so I think we look at micro seismic and, and everybody knows that's one of the most expensive diagnostics technologies you can use. Uh, but one of the companies that's pushing micro seismic is also opening itself to this platform world where you can now compare the micro seismic data against other diagnostics, fiber, uh, this electromagnetic stuff or pressure sensors and try to make it more useful. So I think all the diagnostic vendors have caught on to the fact that shale producers uh, are looking for more data than they ever have. Uh, and the big question is how, how affordable can they make it? And so people are wanting to pair their data sets with other companies uh, data sets. This is, this is leading, um, uh, leading many of these companies to form APIs with people who, few years ago may be considered a competitor, uh, but they realized that the operators need multiple data sets 
you know, integrated on one screen. And so the vendor market's trying to make that happen. Well, so now drilling our advisory uh, presentations have, have, have been um, spreading the, those kinds of displays. Is that, is there an equivalent of that in the completions realm yet? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what's happening. So you have companies like Well Data Labs, been around since 2014. They've had a completions platform. Now they have a lot of company. Uh, Corva, who uh, you, you wrote about recently, right. has become a big name in the drilling advisory, the real-time drilling analytics space. You know what? They have 200 apps, 250 rigs they're, they're monitoring uh, here in the U.S. And, and if you look at Corva's website, you'll, you'll see what they offer is a big visualization platform. Uh, with analytics built into it, that's not available for completions, the completion sector for years. Uh, and as of today, there's about a half a dozen choices for that kind of platform now, including Corva, which has now moved into fracturing. Of course, now this industry isn't too hot to change unless you can make more money. Is there anybody that's so bold as to say, if we can do this and achieve this, that there's um, some number they can put on the payoff for it? Yeah, so this is probably the last point, I'll, you know, um, that I think needs to be made here. This, the whole idea is that we're going to you know, make more money if we monitor these wells, right? Nobody's uh, diving into this just to learn. And so if you can avoid um, fracture interference or frack hits as we call them, uh, you can see that in the data that, it, that the signs of a frack hit are happening. Maybe it's going to be production harming based on your history. Now you have the control and the confidence and the data to support your decision and stopping the pumps. Um, again, this is something stopping the pumps uh, has only happened really historically on an operational basis. So talking screen outs there. Now we're talking about well interactions. If you can see how the wells are talking to each other and you decide they may be talking too much, uh, all this reservoir diagnostics technology that's happening in real time going into your analytics platform is going to come up with an answer that hopefully says, nope, keep pumping. This is, this is okay. Or it says, you know what, you should stop pumping. And then on the next stage, you should pump at a lower rate and maybe less volume. So start to get prescriptive. That's not quite where I think most of the industry is. That's where uh, everybody wants to go, though. Interesting. We'll see how, how long it takes to get there. Yeah, so let's keep the discussion going on this. This is a big topic that we're going to be reporting on uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, so follow us on social media. If you want to grab our attention, use the hashtag SBE podcast. And uh, we're going to listen to your comments and perhaps even talk about them. Coming up, a technique being adopted across the Permian that may be falling short of expectations. We're going to take a closer look at cube developments. But first, a reminder about one of SBE's member benefits, SBE Connect, your virtual destination to meet and collaborate. It's a great spot to discuss specific technical challenges and resolutions in the EMP industry. I go here all the time. You should, too. All right, so Steve, we just uh, talked about reservoir diagnostics. We got into pressure gauges a little bit, but you have uh, uh, an example, a real-life example of ConocoPhillips and how they're uh, uh, using this technology to learn more about shale development. So, right. so what's up with ConocoPhillips? Well, right, I'm working now on a story that is about the paper they came delivered uh, the third of third and three years at um, at Urtech. What's interesting about it is that they they had this incredible test site and. The, year, the first year they did it, there was just an incredible buzz because, pardon the Incredibles, it was just that much. But the, um, the buzz was about the fact that they dug up hundreds and hundreds of, of fractured core so that people could actually see the, the fractures they were creating. And they weren't where they were supposed to be. They didn't look like they were supposed to be. 
A lot of them weren't propped like they were supposed to be. It had a lot of buzz. And this year, it's interesting, comes back to probably the most, most old-fashioned, established, been-around-forever tool for petroleum engineering, which is going back to the pressure gauges. It's really high-end research, and they did a, a use of it that probably never be replicated. But the, the, the message here from um, the author of the paper, Mark Rademan, or the lead author, I should say, he's famous for, he's a, um, a reservoir engineering advisor, he's really kind of famous for leading and explaining uh, this project, was that, you know, it's great to collect the core, we've learned a lot from it, but for engineers, his advice is buy more pressure gauges. Um, it's interesting, on a high-end research, you've been writing a lot about pressure gauges this year, right? Have you, have you sworn off them for this year? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, we were talking earlier before the show, and I was like, you know, I don't think I, I should write about pressure sensors for the rest of the year. Uh, but, but no, it's been, it's been a fascinating thing to look at because, uh, you know, I think it's a technology that's been taken for granted here. Now, the pressure gauges that we're talking about today are a little bit more sophisticated than your grandpa's. I mean, they, they're digital. Some of them can transmit, you know, over the cell networks, and you can get the data in real time. But it is sort of like a base level technology compared to the, all the stuff we just talked about earlier: fiber optics, micro seismic. Right. I mean, I mean, part of it is the problem with fractures, gathering fractures with core is it's expensive. It's it's just so expensive, and you, even when you spend all that money, you still have an awful lot of the of the reservoir that you don't even see. So, but the more practical issue is that while you see a fracture, what this industry is whole, based on is what comes through, what flows through those fractures. And when they went out and measured it, they realized that if you could um, put a pressure sensor near what was a pretty big producing fracture, that a year and a half later, it could be 1,000 PSI lower pressure than a place 45 feet away. So what you're really seeing is what, it, what does production really, really look like? And I think that's been, that's been really missing from this industry. Yeah, and it's pressure management, I mean, which is sort of the hallmark of reservoir engineering, right, or the cornerstone of it. Yeah, that and their, their whole focus is on draining things. It used to be that people had this imaginary world where there's this box full of fractures and they all work and they're all even. It produces beautifully and everything they've shown and this drainage d data shows is that no, really pretty isolated areas end up getting drained. Other areas aren't. And some of the, you don't really know the fracture you see 100 feet away, whether that even connects to the reservoir. I mean, one they observed was r rapidly declining in um, uh, effectiveness over time. The drainage rate was going way down as measured by the pressure. But that's one of the most interesting things about these studies, with the, the, these test site papers. We've seen, you know, the, uh, anecdotally when you go to the rooms, when they're reading them at the technical conferences or standing room only, uh, in our own reader data, we've seen that these have been very popular. So people really want to know what fractures look like. They also really want to know how far do they go out and what's the – the uh, length of that conductive fracture and what you're what, what Ratterman and, and other people have been starting to find out is that that like you know your your contribution zone you know what 60 80 percent of your oil is going to come from a very very tight space from the well bore so the even though the fractures may go out go very long your your production zone is actually pretty close to the well bore is that right right and the trick of it is of course that whatever they observed is probably going to be different from anything else anything you find somewhere else but what they see is that this is a chance to calibrate your models. And so this also got into an awful lot of uh, modeling stuff. But, I mean, his advice is to be skeptical. I mean, is that, you know, before you collect data, before you make any assumptions, because you're liable to be wrong, was his advice. 
of the day. And that, you know, I think that makes a whole lot of sense. And I think this is an industry that needs to invest in actually looking at what's going on. And uh, that, that's a quantity rather than, than a quality kind of proposition. Yeah. And, and the other thing that's interesting about this is, you know, um, as more people write about this, so we have ConocoPhillips, I've written, a, you know, a few articles about different companies saying almost the exact same thing, which is um, the pressure gauges are offering a direct look at where oil and gas is flowing out. So this has been a, a big mystery, really, for like 15 years in the shale sector. But with the with these the simple pressure gauge, whether it's downhole or on the surface, you're starting to get an idea of this flow, but you also have to build an array, right? This isn't just a single well experiment. This is uh, downhole or surface gauges across a, a pad. Yeah, I've actually heard reports that I'm checking out of some other, another company that's, you know, going to build a similar kind of array because they want to know. And of course, you're gather, you've been writing about how on the fracture, the frac hit world that uh, describe what they're doing there to, to and how much they, they can extract from this. Yeah, I think uh, in the last year, I've noticed, especially, uh, you know, a, a, a the trend of people starting to use pressure data um, more actively, write about it. Whereas two or three years ago, I, I, I posed this question to a lot of people, you know, how often do you measure pressure during, you know, fracturing treatments? And the answer was, you know, usually we, we don't, or we do, but we don't look at the data. And, and now what people are realizing is that, uh, there's pressure slopes um, that can be identified as different events happening in the subsurface. So, uh, the, the you know complex one is 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 poroelastic responses. This is essentially the rock being squeezed, um, and you will see that in the neighboring well. Doesn't necessarily mean you've you've put fluid and sand over into that well, but it could lead up to that. You could break through the rock and actually you know flood uh, sand in the next well, and so recognizing these signals is what we were talking about a little bit earlier. People now know that they're, they're learning the thresholds of the rock. They're learning how the rock behaves. As one, one operator put it to me, he's like, you see this for a few times and you're, you know, you're kind of amazed. You see it a thousand times and now you know what your rock will do. And so, so the completion sector um, is not turning a blind eye anymore uh, to the job and looking at the data in post. Increasingly, people are trying to figure out how can we look at this in real time uh, and uh, automate the process is the next big step. To, so an engineer is not looking at the pressure data. The computer is looking at the pressure data and telling the engineer what it means. Right. I mean, ultimately, the, the, the reservoir is just these fractures. In a way, this is getting back to the basics of a petroleum engineer, which engineering which has always been kind of a game of how, many, how much information do you extract from pressure, temperature, and flow. Yeah, and this is really a good topic to lead into the last, the last thing that we wanted to cover today, which is the cube development cube developments because these systems are, uh, or the, these reservoirs are systems, you know, and they work together. Uh, and so usually um, if you go back and you look at a lot of industry slide decks uh, five years ago, or even a little bit more, a, a lot of the projects were talking about as isolated. Um, so, you know, the, these wells, these unbounded wells would produce really well. And then as infill drilling took uh, hold over most of the major basins, we saw that the, the child wells, the next wells, were coming in lower. And so this is, of course, a huge, huge topic in the shale sector. We've been covering it from a, a technical angle for about three years. Um, but to get around that, to get, you know, people want to make all uh, child wells or all parent wells, basically. That's the cube drilling. Drill them all at once and complete them all at once. And, uh, and that's what the, the largest operators have started moving towards in the Permian, uh, the Permian Basin. Right, and this is obviously a huge, huge test of where where the pressure reactions are going, where does, which wells communicate with each other, 
And uh, the Lord, one thing they don't want to do is to try to find that out by spending. Um, how much money do they spend here? Well, so the cubes, uh, they have a price range that people throw out there. We hear $100 million to $250 million, which is a pretty notable range there. Um, but they, but they're massive projects. I mean, I've, I've seen papers, uh, been given on these and you'll have small independent operators in the room and, and they'll get up and raise their hand and they're saying, you know, well, I don't, I don't have enough capital for six rigs at once, you know? So what, you know, what am I supposed to do? So it really has kind of bifurcated the shale game a little bit. Uh, and there's people who can afford to do cubes and there's people who can't. And, uh, so the cube really don't, I, I tell everybody, don't be, uh, don't, have tunnel vision on the cube and think that this is the only solution or development pathway. It's, it's only one of several that have started to emerge. So is there now a poster child for cubes? Yeah. So the, the, uh, Concho resources project, uh, came out a, a couple of months ago. Uh, the results showed that, uh, this was a 20 well, 23 well project and that the, the production looks like it's falling short of expectations. And so Concho took a year to drill these wells out in Lee County, New Mexico, which has <clears throat> become considered sort of the sweet spot of the Delaware, uh, the Delaware Basin, half of the Permian Basin. And the first few wells came on just fine, uh, right in line with company averages, over 1,000 barrels a day of initial production. Then the last six wells of this 23-well pad uh, came on, and they were, they were weak, about 40% lower initial production than the first wells. And what this suggested to the experts and the analysts out there, I think even to Concho, was that the wells may be draining from the same zone, which that suggests that the area may have been overcapitalized. So did they need 23 wells or did they need 16 wells? Overcapitalized. In other words, they spent a lot of money in that for no good reason. Yeah. So this is always a big question with well spacing, right? This isn't just tied to the cube, but it, but the cube really highlights this, this shale question, which is, am I, am I getting more reserves or am I accelerating production? So, so what was it was different about those bad wells? That, that, were they the ones that were in between the, the, the initials? Yeah, I don't know the exact orientation, um, but w what we do know is that the wells on average were 230 feet apart, which Ooh. if you've looked at, yeah, if you've looked at uh, uh, most company recipes, that's very, very tight, you know, and, and a lot of companies were doing 200-ish, 250 feet in places like the Eagleford a few years ago, and they actually started to back off. Now the Permian players are starting to go through those same kind of learning lessons. Uh, so, you know, as far as uh, being a bad well, I, I think what's interesting is that they were that they were turned on, you know, after the first ones popped, and and that's what kind of the the forty percent decline in, in initial production was a was an immediate tip off that they that these wells might be in communication. And if you've been studying that whole area, this is not just a frac frack interference or frack hits, but over time, these wells can still produce from each other's zone. Right. And, and the question is how much co-production is okay and how much uh, leads to diminishing returns. That is not always very clear. And that's why these projects, you know, this one really hit the company's stock hard, but you can't fault them for trying to push the envelope because everybody's trying to see how many wells can we squeeze in. And now it looks like two dozen wells is too much in this part of the Permian Basin. Well, on the other side, though, a lot of times in this industry, somebody has a, a bad experience and the people generalize and say, that's it. It's a terrible idea. It's dead. Never do it again. Do you get that impression that that that, that what did this, you know, how, what did what did you learn about this? It's negative And what it, what potential is there that this might actually work? OK, so the black eye for the shale sector here is that um, when cube projects were first talked about by the operators, 
the idea was that maybe you could get up to 60 wells in a 640 acre section, yeah. you know, cause the, the Permian, as many people know is stacked. So you can put these wells, you know, uh, vertically a hundred feet apart and squeeze a bunch of these straws in. And, you know, to date uh, a pad that big, the one I just described, that's never been done in the Permian. Right. So, so what people are realizing, some people call this the recalibration of expectations, the cube operation on the surface appears to be necessary going forward to lower uh, the cost of drilling and completing these wells. And if you do that right, you can actually afford to have a lower producing well because you've achieved some economies of scale on the surface. That and you're not moving anything around and you can just mass produce it. Yeah, that's right. This is actually the closest thing the shale sector's ever gotten to the so-called factory mode drilling. And, and, but, but, the, but the downside is that you don't know if your plan is right. You don't have the ability to do trial and error as much as you do if you're, if you're putting your wells in sequentially. So you, you open up uh, 20 wells at once, and only after a, a few months of that do you realize that maybe I put too many wells in. I mean, another thing is on these things, wasn't it that they believe that if you came in after something was fracked a year or so, that the pressure drop on the, in, the, in, the, in the old well was going to just be a magnet for frack hits, and that by doing everything at once, you would overcome that. But I guess there's a limit to how much uh, benefit that is. Yeah, it goes back to the, the idea of, of pressure management, right? So the cube essentially is a pressure management tactic. Uh, the in situ pressure, the, the virgin native pressures there, you're going to try to take advantage of that so you don't have these big zones of depletion that, like you said, they're like, they call them pressure sinks. You know, every, all the fracks just want to go that way. So why not do them all at once? Then you had that really high pressure system uh, and people, you know, talk about frack barriers and even loading up one well to act as a frack barrier for the ones on the right side of it or the left side of it. All, all of that stuff is happening, but it, it still doesn't account for the fact that if you use too tight of spacing and your wells are essentially, you, the, the easiest way to think of this is I put two wells where I should have just put one. Right. And now these two wells are producing what one would have. That's the problem with cube drilling that the operators are challenged with with uh, overcoming. It's also the exact same reason why we're not going to see, at least you know, in, in the Delaware Basin is the consensus, we're not going to see any 25 well pads or certainly any 50 well pads because the communication between these wells is higher than what was initially believed two or three years ago. Yeah, I mean, you could space them wider, but I guess the, also the problem is when you have that many wells, are you just absolutely guaranteed of hitting some of the marginal rock? Yeah, I, you know, that, that, that goes beyond my pay grade right there. But people, this is why people talk about flow units. Um, Oxy's big on that. We wrote about that right. uh, last year. So if you know um, the, the tendencies of how fractures grow in a certain layer, that's when you start to get spacing right. So that's why, uh, you know, subsurface diagnostics, that's not necessarily uh, real time, but we're talking about stuff like pyrolysis, uh, which you've written a little yeah. bit about. So the geochemistry world, all of that stuff's getting more important to understand how these rocks flow once you frack into them. Uh, and that's still, I would say, emerging uh, yeah. science. And uh, so so it just shows you how complex, you know, getting things right in the shale world is. We, we see a lot of uh, pictograms of how to put wells into these, you know, these layer cake uh, shale formations. But those are just cartoons, and and the reality is so much more complex than than anything that we can draw or try to express visually about how these systems work. At least for reporters, for sure. But I mean, you got to think that if you can drill a well and complete it cheaper, 
the idea will stick around. Yeah. So, that, you know, just to sum this up and tie this all, all together, uh, cube drilling d- d- appears to have uh, a future. And I haven't met anybody that thinks that cube drilling is going to go away. Uh, what's what's what it doesn't uh, answer for, though, again, is is do you, how much do you know about the subsurface? How much do you know about proper well spacing? But as an operational um, tactic, uh, e- you know, even the most uh, you know uh, pessimistic analyst on on the shale outlook are still you know get the economies of scale that that are provided by cube drilling. So there's no way that cube drilling is going to go away. It's just going to have to focus uh, much more on the subsurface. They're going to have to do what they did on the surface. They're going to have to do that on the subsurface now. And uh, we can promise you at JPT, we're going to keep writing about it until these guys get it right. Yep, or until or somebody makes us stop. But we think it's, you know, we, we, one of the reasons why we, we go into these issues so much is that uh, the, climbing the learning curve in oil and gas is essential to success. And so uh, these, we bring you these stories, we bring you these topics because we think that some people are learning things and uh, they're giving them out to share. We just want to amplify those, those uh, learning lessons. So uh, we covered a lot of ground today, Steve, um, but, you know, I think that we're going to have some more topics in the next uh, the next episode. We're going to probably delve into some different areas. But all the things that we just mentioned, all these stories and articles and reports, they're on JPT online and in print. Uh, these topics have been getting a lot of attention, which is why we're highlighting them over again here. Uh, and in the show notes, we're going to put links in there. So we'll have a few SBE paper links that were uh, papers that we're referencing, and we'll have some links to articles. Hey, let's take a break real quick and look at the SBE event calendar. OTC Brazil will be in Rio de Janeiro, 29th through the 31st of October. Then in November, 7th through 8th, we're going to have the Liquids Rich Basin Conference in Odessa, Texas. And the Asia Pacific Unconventional Resources Technology Conference, the Asia Pacific Urtech, will make its way to Australia in mid-November. And kicking off 2020 in style will be the International Petroleum Technology Conference, IPTC. This is going to be held in Saudi Arabia from the 13th to the 15th of January. And for a complete list of conferences, symposiums, workshops, and more, please visit sbe.org slash events slash calendar. All right, folks, let's keep the conversation going. Please use the hashtag SBE podcast on all your social media channels to reach out to us. We want you to leave comments, reviews, give us some ideas. We love hearing from you. You can also find SBE Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So just search SBE Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, etc. And we're also online at sb.org slash podcast. And of course, we want you to read JPT online and in print. So please make sure to bookmark us and check in for new content. I want to give a special thanks to our producer, Jason Notorious. I'm Trent Jacobs. I'm Steve Rossifus. And See you next time. podcast is powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers, the largest individual member organization serving managers, engineers, scientists, and other professionals worldwide in the upstream segment of the oil and gas industry. Learn more at spe.org.